0: All right, everyone, if you would open your Bibles, we're looking in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. We just got one verse, it's out of the Beatitudes, and then a little bit later, we're going to be looking at the rest of the Beatitudes, so it might be good to have your Bibles open because we're only just going to read one, only one's printed in there. Um, maybe put your finger in there, just stick something in there to save your spot uh, for later. It's on page 810 in your pew Bible. You know, today we're going to be looking at peacemaking. God saves us not just from our sin, but so that we would be peacemakers like him. Now, this sermon is not going to list things like the 10 steps for making peace or the eight simple things you could do today in order to have peace tomorrow. No, my intent is to address our understanding and our attitudes Without the right understanding and attitudes, having a list of steps will mean nothing, right? Our passage today, Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have shown us so many wonderful truths in your scriptures, truths that utterly change us. As we look at this one short little verse uh, that came from Jesus's lips years ago, may we be transformed by your spirit as your children, uh, that we would reflect your glorious peacemakers on earth, we pray. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, uh, Steve Martin, the comedian, was on Saturday Night Live and they had him on this set where the lights were dark and he was sitting in a nice comfy chair by a Christmas tree and he was sharing with the world his holiday wish. It went like this. If I had one wish I could wish for this holiday season... It would be for all the children of the world to join hands and sing together in a spirit of harmony and peace. If I had two wishes that I could make this holiday season, first would be for all the children of the world to join hands and sing in a spirit of harmony and peace, and the second would be for $30 million a month to be given to me tax-free in a Swiss bank account. You know, if I had three wishes that I could make this holiday season, first, of course, would be all the stuff for the kids. Second would be for the $30 million a month to me. The third would be for an all-encompassing power over every living being in the entire universe. (laughs) He goes on, but we don't need to go there to understand the point that he's showing us. Steve Martin's holiday wish highlights our mentality. Think about it. It's true, isn't it? We say we long for peace, but our hearts have higher priorities. Our hearts beat for ourselves. Isn't it so often true that we want peace so that we may enjoy the quiet? But thankfully, Jesus brings us a new reality into this world. This verse that we read is part of a larger section called the Beatitudes, which itself is part of an even larger teaching of Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry called the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon takes place at the very beginning of his teaching with his disciples, and he gathers them together, and he explains to them the ethics of his kingdom, the kingdom that has come, with his presence and the kingdom that will one day fully come when he returns. And and, and his teaching, these ethics, uh, show to his disciples what it looks like to belong to the kingdom of heaven. The type of person that you will become by virtue of your relationship with me. And so when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you realize that Christ's kingdom is far different than any of the kingdoms of this earth. The kingdom that Jesus describes is actually upside down to the kingdoms of this world. So when Jesus looks in the eyes of his curious disciples and he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, he is laying before them a new calling to live in a new way. Jesus is not saying, be good little boys and girls who don't fight, and then God will, of course, make you his child. No, Jesus is saying, since you are already a child of God, guess what? You will be a peacemaker, just like your father in heaven. As Leon Morris writes, there is something godlike in bringing peace to people and people to peace. And so know this, if God by his grace has saved you through his son, you have been saved for peacemaking. That's what we're going to look at here this morning in two areas. First, we're going to look at the peace child. I think you'll figure out where we're going with this. Uh, And then the peace children. First, the peace child. Now there's a a good book. It's not on the book table. You can order from Amazon um, called the peace child. It's written by Don Richardson and it recounts the story of his missionary days years ago when he worked with the Sawi tribe um, in Irianjaya. Richardson was having a really difficult time communicating with the Sawi people about the meaning of Christ's death. Now, the Sawi people had a constant feud with another tribe. It had gone on so long that there really wasn't ever going to be any peace. Peace. But Richardson discovered that there was a custom among the people that if peace were ever to be made, that it would be made by one person from one tribe taking his own baby and bringing it to the other tribe and leaving it there for all time. It was to be given as a permanent gift. And according to their customs, as long as the baby lived, they would have to honor peace between the tribes. The problem was they hated each other so much that no one would give up a baby to bring peace. That is until one day when a man picked up his only child, who's just a little baby boy. He took this baby boy in his arms with his wife chasing after him. He ran into the village, the village of the enemy, and he presented them his son. And do you know what they call the baby? They call him the peace child. And as long as the baby lived, there was peace. And now Don Richardson had his analogy to explain what God has done through the cross of Christ. Jesus is the peace child. God, listen, God is the father who runs his son into our world. And as long as Jesus lives, there is peace. And because Jesus is risen from the dead, he lives forever. There will always be peace between God and those who have received his son. God is the ultimate peacemaker. Though mankind as a whole has turned its back on God and sought to live self-focused lives for their own glory, though mankind is constantly fighting among ourselves, though mankind has ravaged God's good and beautiful creation, Though each and every one by our nature has turned from God, though each and, each and every one of our lives have been lived for self and for our own, our own gain, all of our lives have been in rebellion against our Creator. But God, in, in a love that's just so hard to wrap our heads around, has made peace with us through His peace. child. And so if we're ever going to understand peacemaking, we must meditate upon and delight in the God of peacemaking. If you're ever to have a right heart attitude for making peace here on earth, we must know the heart of God for making peace here on earth. If we ever want to have the right willingness for making peace here on earth, we must understand the willingness of God to make peace with us for ever to have a commitment for making peace here on earth, we must understand the commitment of God in making peace with man. Which brings us, I guess, to a really good question. What is peace? Unfortunately, we tend to have a one-dimensional view of peace. The English word peace is often defined negatively, as in the absence of conflict. Let me ask you, if, if I were to say that happiness was the absence of sadness, what would you think that my definition was lacking? Happiness isn't just the absence of sadness, it's the presence of something pleasing, a, a sense of enjoyment, right? And so our English word peace can be so one-dimensional compared to the Hebrew word that it translates. The word is shalom. On the front of our bulletins, I quoted from Cornelius Plantinga Jr.'s book. It's a great book. It's on our table back there. For some reason, we don't sell a whole lot of them, but it's a good one to read. Maybe it'll be gone by next Sunday. Who knows? But um, his book is not the way it's supposed to be. Here's what he writes. He says, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom, We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights shalom shalom in other words is the way things ought to be shalom isn't merely the absence of conflict it's the presence of universal flourishing wholeness and delight and so if you want to begin seeing If you want to begin seeing peace, it's not just the absence of conflict. We need to see it as the presence of what? Of human flourishing. Everything going right within our relationships and within society and with our relationship with God. A peacemaker promotes the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation. And this is how mankind was made to live. Adam and Eve used to walk in the garden without any anxiety. They were at peace with God and at peace with each other, at least until sin entered into the world. Plantinga has an interesting definition for the word sin. He calls it the vandalism of shalom. That's what sin is. Adam turned from God and shalom was vandalized. Adam's turning from God was a form of mutiny from his creator. Screw you, God. I don't need you seated on the throne of my life. I'm going to do this on my own. Adam rebelled. Shalom was vandalized. He no longer lived in peace with God, nor in peace with man. Consider his relationship with his wife. Blaming her. Cursing God for her. That is why to this day we lack peace in so many ways. And so the greatest conflict that man can experience isn't with our fellow man. Our greatest conflict and lack of peace is with God himself. Countless millions of people live oblivious to the fact that that conflict exists between them and God. They think surely everything must be okay with God. God has to be okay with me. I'm, I'm a pretty decent person. And well, you know, at least I haven't groped anybody lately, right? That's how people tend to think. But think it through this way. Sin isn't the little naughty things that you do wrong. Sin is actually a position of rebellion against your creator. Sin is living in the creator's world as if the creator does not exist. And you don't need to be an atheist to live this way. This world is full of functional atheists. A functional atheist is someone who says there is a God, yet essentially lives as if there is no God. (laughs) He has no impact upon their life. God is not seated upon the throne of their life. Rather, their own self and own desires are. And so if God is not seated on the throne of your life, then guess what? You have usurped him. Your life, as good as you may think it is, is in rebellion against God. You cannot call him friend. You certainly cannot call him father. He is your foe. And so the greatest lack of peace isn't between countries or political parties or within families. The greatest hostility is between man and God. But God has sent the peace child to make peace with us. Now, I don't know if you notice noticed this, but peace just doesn't seem to come naturally, right? Stick a husband and a wife, hell-bent on divorce, in a locked room, and what happens? Does peace happen? No, by default, conflict erupts. The only hope that they have is that one of them has a deep change of heart and takes a positive step forward towards making peace. I'm sorry. I've acted selfishly. My sin has gotten the best of me. Will you forgive me? Peace is never made through inaction. Peace must always be made. You cannot sit and wait for the other person to come to their senses. You must go and make peace. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the peacetakers, or even blessed are the peacekeepers, but blessed are the peacemakers. Peace doesn't happen on its own. It must be made. And as children of God we're called to make peace. Now that is what God has done. You know, the Trinity wasn't up in heaven looking down on earth saying, well, maybe in another 300 years those humans will see how wrong they are and how much to blame they are and give them some time. They will change their ways. Then we can have a humanity that we can work with, right? No, God did not wait for us to clean up our act one bit before he ran from heaven to give us his peace child. Remember where the scriptures say, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Elsewhere we read, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Elsewhere in Colossians we read, for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's the God-man. And through him to reconcile... To himself all things, whether in heaven or in earth. And then listen. Making peace by the blood of his cross. God sent his son to make peace, to reconcile us back to God. We don't deserve it. But Christ made peace for us possible by the shedding of his own blood. The peace child came to live so that he could die so that all who look to him in faith will be reconciled back to God and enjoy peace with God. So the truth, as we finish out this point, is this. If we're we're ever going to enjoy peace in our lives and peace in this world, then it is God who must be the one who works this peace. He has, and he does this. So let me ask you this. Have you come to see life as it really is? Have you come to see mankind is in rebellion from God and and that this is the ultimate reason for conflict on earth? And is your great goal to be reconciled to God if you haven't yet? You know, it must hold us speechless that God ran his son into this world so that we would be reconciled back to him and receive God's eternal peace. That's the peace child. Now for the children of peace. You know, I'm sure you've all heard the statement, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. It means that the child usually has similar character or similar qualities as his or her parents, for instance, if a child, for some crazy reason uh, enjoys country music like mom and dad, uh, one would say, "Well, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree, does it? Nothing against country music, I like it. I listen to it ninety six one there we go on the radio so but as we look at this we you know the point is we're god's children, and we are to display his characteristics because his life is being pressed into us so first I want us to look at our motivation what is our motivation for being peacemakers it's because we're children of God a child of God is a peacemaker because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree your motivation for being a peacemaker is that you belong to the family of peacemakers and it's true We need a lot of motivation, don't we? Peacemaking is hard. Peacemaking is costly. Peacemaking often causes more conflict before the peace is made, right? You've experienced that. Peacemaking doesn't always end in peace being made. Sometimes the situation gets worse. Fortunately, I'm afraid we all have experienced that too. But our motivation for making peace far outweighs the allure of complacency. God has this world on a trajectory that will end in eternal perfect peace. And he has us here now on his earth to be peacemakers with that end in mind. And our motivation begins with understanding what God does for us. God doesn't just forgive us our sins. And God doesn't just reconcile us to him and say, you know, all right, keep it up. See you later. No, what does God do? He he pardons our sins, he reconciles us, but he also adopts us into his family. The love of the cross is so powerful, it doesn't just pardon us for our rebellion against God, it brings rebels into the very family of God and gives them all the blessings of a relationship uh, of God. Rebels become his children. And I think what we need to do more, myself as well, is we need to, to ponder just what adoption means for us. We were once rebels and now God in his grace has made us his very children. I mean, just the thought of that ought to just transform how we see ourselves and, and, and how we live in this world and how we relate with others. And yes, of course, how we, how we become better peacemakers. Our motivation for making peace is that our Father is a peacemaker. And the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Now for our posture. The posture of peacemaking can, is, is that of what? Humility. We can only begin to make peace if we have humility before God and our fellow man. Isn't it true that when we often lack in our relationships, we lack peace? It's because like, we think we deserve better, right? We have healthy elevated views of ourselves and we consider other people's wrongs and and then we magnify them and then when we actually take a little time to look at our own flaws, well, we minimize those. We're certain it's the other person who's to blame. And even when it is the other person who's at fault, we don't seek to really empathize with them or try to understand them. We simply want peace on our terms, which means you come to me. I tell us what peace looks like. That's kind of how we're wired. Isn't it also true that there's times when our minds imagine all kinds of weird things going on that that can cause turmoil? We start guessing what other people are thinking, right? And we assume the worst of motives. And then we start playing some sort of scenario in our heads without really ever really knowing the truth. It's not just me, right? You guys do that too, don't you? Whenever we try to read other people's thoughts and motives, it disrupts peace. One of my seminary professors told a story of a pastor of a, of a healthy, small, thriving uh, church in a small town, but something seemed to go wrong when the pastor lengthened the morning worship service by 15 minutes. No one seemed to be uh, get upset, but then the pastor began this story. Here's what he said. He said, church used to end at 1030, now it goes to 1045. One man sits near the back. Each week he stands up precisely at 10.30, straightens his jacket and pants, and walks out. He never said anything. But I could feel his displeasure over the long service. Indeed, sometimes I had to labor to stifle my anger at the weekly display. Then one week I changed the order of worship and put the sermon first. The man still left at 10.30. But later that day his wife called. She said, Pastor, you can't imagine how happy my husband was today. You see, he has to report to work by 1045 on Sundays. He waits until the last possible minute each week, but it grieves him that he can never stay until the end of your message. Today he heard your whole sermon, and it so pleased him. I just had to tell you. Guessing other people's motives is a prime way to sub- subvert peace. We pridefully think that we can read others' people's motives, and, and in doing so, conflict erupts. So there's a humility that we need in order to be peacemakers. That's what Jesus is communicating his disciples with the Beatitudes. Now's the time to maybe open back up there. Um, it's page 809 in your Pew Bible. There is a progression in the Beatitudes. Look at them. Jesus doesn't begin by saying blessed are the peacemakers that's the last thing he says he says other things before that he begins with what I think it's verse 3 blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven my friends To be poor in spirit means that you see your own spiritual poverty before seeing somebody else's. You agree with God that there's nothing good in you except that which God gives you. That's how the Beatitudes begin. You cannot be a peacemaker until you become one who sees your own spiritual lack. Next Beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning here isn't crying over, so much over the, the loss of a loved one. No. Mourning here relates to the previous beatitude. You see your spiritual weakness and poverty. You see your daily sinfulness and you mourn over it. You lament the fact that you continue to be one who vandalizes shalom. You cannot be an effective peacemaker unless you mourn over your own sin first. Remember a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, Jesus you know, says, take that big giant plank, plank of wood out of your own eye before you begin to help your brother with that little bit of sawdust in his eye. If you do not mourn over your own sin, you will try to make peace from a position of superiority. Jesus says, no. Instead, mourn over your sin. Then, in love, build shalom with other sinners. The next beatitude Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, remember, we've taught on this before meekness is not weakness, meekness is strength, but under control. It is the meek person who restrains his or her power so that shalom, so that peace may prevail. Remember Joseph and his brothers, when his brothers sold Joseph into slavery? But then over the years, Joseph rose to power. He became the second most powerful person in all the world next to Pharaoh himself. Years later, his brothers came begging for grain, for food. They didn't even recognize Joseph. Let me ask you, what would you have done in that situation? Would you not have been prone to gloat over them? Throw them in prison, punish them, humiliate them, make them grovel and beg and plead? Joseph had the power to do all of that and more. He could have lopped off their heads, but his strength was under control. He chose to bless them. He looked at them and loved them, and he gave them everything they needed. Joseph wasn't a coward. He wasn't a timid man. Joseph was meek. He had strength under control of the gospel. You know, you cannot make peace in a way that honors God unless you're meek. Otherwise, you use the power that you have or the circumstances you have for payback or to manipulate for your own advantage. Think of the boss or the husband or the coach or the, who, who has power but lacks control. He uses his strength to get his way, to get other people to toe the line. And it will appear to him as if there is peace, because he thinks peace is just lack of conflict, and he's got everybody under his control. But remember, peace is an absence of conflict. It's the presence of flourishing. God must work meekness into you, or your peacemaking will suffer. The next beatitude is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. My friends, righteousness is a fruit of peacemaking. Righteousness is what? It's this world done right. Justice, harmony, flourishing. The children of God are to live each day with with a picture in their mind of of what their heavenly Father is doing here on earth. And the children of God are therefore to, to hunger and thirst for more and more of it. We're to long more and more for that future reality that is to come, that it would be present here on earth today. Next is blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is compassion in action. Peacemaking necessitates mercy. Of all the marriage counseling sessions that I've led, I cannot think of a single couple in which the fault laid 100% on one and 0% on the other but usually the husband thinks the wife is 100% to blame, and then the wife thinks that the husband is 100% to blame. But the reality is, unless it's an extreme example of abuse, that both spouses have done things to harm or hurt the other. Both are guilty of vandalizing shalom in the house, and both feel like victims. That is why uh, the peacemaker is merciful, Instead of condemnation, the peacemaker has compassion for the other person who has harmed him or her. The peacemaker is by necessity one who shows mercy. Now, it's important to state that ultimately peacemaking, to have real true peace, requires what? Two willing parties. Sometimes you try and try with great humility and mercy to be at peace with all people, but some will never reciprocate. But know this, you've done your part. Here's what Paul writes to the church in Rome. If you're taking notes, it's Romans 12, verse 18. Paul writes, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, not the other person, live peaceably with all. It's possible that people will reject your attempts for peace. Sad as it is, many people live this way. But the Christian is always to seek to live peaceably with all. The next beatitude is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart are those who, by God's grace, now have new hearts that beat for Christ in his kingdom And therefore, they pursue purity and righteousness in all areas of life. They no longer live for self or selfish gain. God is firmly placed on the throne of their lives. And and so when someone strikes their cheek, they're able to turn and give the other one. When someone persecutes them for righteousness' sake, they count themselves blessed. And so do you see now why blessed are the peacemakers comes towards the end? of the Beatitudes. All the other Beatitudes flow into peacemaking. There is a humility before God and man that must be worked into you before you can effectively live out your calling to be a peacemaker. We must be a people who are poor in spirit, a people who mourn over our sin and who approach others in meekness, with a hunger and a thirst. For righteousness, and who are merciful and compassionate to other sinners, and who long with purity of heart for the shalom of God to be present everywhere. If you have peace with God through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son, then God has saved you for peacemaking. Now, as we approach the Lord's table, consider how God can continue to grow you as a peacemaker. I'm going to leave that application up to you. You've heard the word preached. You've seen what it looks like from a heavenly perspective to be a peacemaker. How will that look in your lives going forward? What further truth must you press into your heart? What, What actions can you take? What do you need to repent of? And who can you approach later in humility and work towards building peace? I'll allow you the time to think that through as we come forward to receive the supper. I think we can also ask God to give, give us hearts for peacemaking. Perhaps take time this week to meditate on these beatitudes and press them into our lives. I think all of us can perhaps open our eyes more fully to what God is really doing, what his plans are for the future, to bring shalom, peace to earth someday. And he's begun that in Christ. May our lives be transformed by that. May that be no small thing for us. May that be more of the ultimate thing that guides us and drives us, changes us in the present. And try to fathom what God has done for you. He hasn't just saved you and left you alone. No, he's adopted you into his family. You have a new status. You have a new identity. In Christ, you are a child of God, dearly loved for all eternity. And so embrace who you are as a child of God. Your heavenly father is the greatest of all peacemakers. And he has made peace with you, his child. And he has saved you for peacemaking. Let's pray. Father, your grace towards us is magnificent. That you would make peace with rebels, people who tarnish your image here on earth, who turn our backs to you, who take this earth and damage it and destroy it in so many ways. People made in your image, but we take that glory for our own purpose and gain. And yet you have come to make peace with us. We thank you, Father, that you now call us your children through Christ. May we be more transformed um, by by our adoption. May we hope more and more for the future peace to come, that it will be present in our lives and in our communities, we pray. Amen.